a bit, bit of a, a bit of an insane stream of consciousness. Oh yeah, that's what it's all. That's what it's all about. You're already recording, aren't you? You're trying to catch me unawares. So yeah, <laughs> no, I, knew, no, I, no, I just, just realised exactly what you're trying oh, to do there. Yeah, this is the raw version of Alex Wilson. No, I only just started. Uh, we're back, Alex. We are. It's exciting. End of a week. End of the week. Yeah, another uh, tremendous week in the most isolated uh, capital of the world. Very pleased to be here. Brahma's here as well. So look, yep. we'll see where the conversation takes us. It's going to be um, a flight of fancy. <laughs> Lots of loose threads, uh, which, which we'll try and connect and, and try and uh, incorporate some of the what we discussed in the last episode as mm. well as respond to some of the feedback we received from that episode as well. Yeah, and if you're only uh, if you're only just tuning in, you know who knows we've we've got uh, probably tens or maybe even hundreds of listeners. Who knows? Uh, but you know the whole point of this was me and Alex, who usually on the uh, the indie media show we. Uh, decided to create a bit of a platform where we could discuss ideas in, in you know more in depth and really just uh, have a bit of a chat have a bit of a go at each other maybe as well absolutely uh, absolutely we did uh last week we sort of asked for a bit of feedback you know how people are feeling about it what was worthwhile doing we, we received a bit of feedback uh you know at least from some of our friends uh you know some people seem to like it some people, you know, yeah, indeed, you. and uh, there was some some very heartening responses from some very uh, dear comrades of ours uh, with respect to the fragmentation of the left and how we might set about at least the initial steps of uh, reforging you know, bonds of unity and trust and solidarity on the left, left, which is. Uh, no mean feat, and that's it's. I mean, it's a huge topic, but maybe we can explore some some of the elements of that. How to, because it's all very well and easy to uh, to complain, to to criticise uh, what has happened to the left over the course of the last thirty years, but uh, rebuilding rebuilding it and putting the, the broken pieces back together. Uh, mm. No, no mean feat, and I think there's a, there's an attitude of humility that comes with that as well. But we can get into to some of that. Yeah, we will get into some of that. I mean, I think you could sort of uh, segue a bit into some of the comments. I mean, I put it up on uh, you know uh, one of the famous sort of social media platforms. I received a few comments on that. I received this comment, and I won't say who it's from. Uh, we're not here to sort of you know to to talk dirty about anyone aside from ourselves. But uh, there was a comment on uh, on one of the the platforms. Uh, from someone I've known for a long time, and it's it's a bit, it's always a bit sad when you've got uh, you know I guess friends, you know family friends, comrades that are uh, kind of go down the, the rabbit hole of conspiracy theory, and we've seen that a lot with uh, the COVID nineteen pandemic. But we got a comment here saying the biggest political issues of our time, in my opinion, is the global domination of all things by the USA and the COVID scam, and you miss them. Now, I mean, I guess there's two points there: the the American Empire, and you wouldn't really have any uh, issue from me or Alex mm. about the you know Certainly. the impacts of the the U.S. Empire and the the ongoing uh, wars around the world and the the influence, of course, that American hegemony has on the rest of the world. That's that's a that's a whole point that we can we can talk about, but I don't even think we need to. And I think it's sort of offensive to say that would even you know, not being on side in that regard. But, you know, the so-called COVID scam, and I think, you know, I didn't, it's one of these things on our regular program, we haven't really talked a lot about COVID because it gets talked about so much to the to the extent where you think, you know, regardless of whether people are COVID conspiracy theorists or they, they buy every single thing put out by states, uh, hook, line and sinker, mm. either way, you kind of think, well, there's so much more important things to be talking about in a way. But, of course, you know there are elements of of what's happened during the pandemic that are that are important. It's exposed us, of course, certain contradictions within the capitalist system. And I think, interestingly, the whole COVID conspiracy and way in which it's captured elements of the so-called left, mm. uh, I guess some of the libertarian left, uh, you know, some of the sort of you know hippie and and, and self-development sort of uh, movements. I think it's worth exploring a bit of that, and. You know, and I, and I guess before we get into it, because I'm sure Alex will get stuck in stuck into me. I mean, I would say at first my you know initial response to COVID was I, I was definitely um, you know approaching it from a, a libertarian point of view and and thinking oh this is just all just a, a bit of nonsense. And I think you know my my position has changed throughout it. I probably take a more nuanced position now, where of course I acknowledge the existence of COVID nineteen. Do I uh, you know support the ways in which the state and you know the global capitalist hegemony corporations responded. Of course not. Absolutely, of course not. So, yeah, there's, there's a bit of nuance to it, but perhaps you know worth talking about. 
at least because, uh, you know, some of our listeners have brought it up. Yeah, and I think in terms of the well from which the COVID-19 conspiracy theories spring, there are multiple points of origin. So I think we have to delineate between the different types of COVID-related conspiracy theories. There are those uh, conspiracy theories coming from the right, in some cases uh, the far right, which is is predicated on opposition to uh, a mass vaccination programs and a kind of a very aggressive uh, cleavage to certain form of individual property rights, really, and um, any kind of freedoms that were curtailed by the state were opposed in principle by the right, whereas, uh, you know, on the left, I think I'm, I certainly, speaking of myself and my own reaction, there was a sense in which you, you have to put the collective first and the, the interests of uh, public health and safety first, which, uh, you know, frankly, does involve or did involve certain sacrifices in terms of being compliant with, with lockdowns and public uh, health uh, regulations and being compliant in terms of being uh, getting vaccinated and so forth. And you think, well, that's that's language that's alien to, to a socialist to talk about being compliant with state measures. But therein lies one of the the differences and debates that uh, d- did take place between, for instance, myself and Ray as, if you like, avatars or representatives of those different political approaches. So, so there is the libertarian uh, perspective which says we cannot ever trust the state in any circumstances oh, and at any time, which I think is an overly simplistic view of this, the state, um, you know, you had to see that there were elements of what the state was doing with, with lockdowns and vaccination programs, which are were, were of benefit, benefit to the public. But getting, getting back to the, the conspiracy theories, I think part of what that was about, coming both from the left and the right, was the assumption that capitalism is always in control of its own system and somehow that it's always a step or several steps ahead of um, what, what is actually politically unfolding and that really anything that happens you know sort of in the global capitalist system is 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 uh, masterminded by by capitalists themselves and I, I I think that's a very childish view of, of what took place COVID was not a you know, not a man-made disease as far as we know, although there's still some speculation that came out of the, the Wuhan lab in, in China. It was something beyond the control of states. And the, the reality, I think, is quite um, actually pedestrian, really, in terms of what states around the world were trying to do, which was get back to business as usual, and to get back to business as usual, as opposed to this notion mm. that this was somehow part of the, the, the great reset uh, and that it was the great yeah. conspiracy. Yeah. So it was the big high tech companies and it was Bill Gates and it was, um, you know, Microsoft and Facebook and Google, etc., all conspiring to to lock everyone in their homes and be addicted to to, to social media. That's, I think, a, a pretty churlish view of what took place. I mean, I, th- I think there's just one thing there, though, Alex, you're saying that sort of, you know, um, libertarians or libertarian socialists or anarchists are always say, well, you know, what if the state always uh, goes against the, the interests of uh, the collective and, and, and of its, um, you know, of, of its people. It's, it's, it's not so much that. It's just that the state can only act with the apparatus the state has and can only act in within the, the confines of, of the ways in which a state can act. So, of course, the state responded to the crisis with coercive authority, with punishment, with uh, policing, militarised policing. And, and in that, we should be critical. We should be critical yeah. of the ways in which uh, lockdowns and, uh, you know, mandatory vaccination took place, the fact that, you know, people uh, ended up homeless, losing their jobs. Many, many people, you know, ended the, the suicidality, you know, the amount of people that killed themselves through lack of support through just the the absolute arbitrarily authoritarian way in which uh, states responded to this, mm. d- does that mean that you know it was necessarily um, you know there's a conspiracy that by uh, you know big pharma or whatever people want to want to call it? Not, not not necessarily, but it's just that corporations and governments can only act the way in which corporations can government governments can act and the, and the ways in which they're set up to act, and that's why we saw things such as in mm. Melbourne where you had you know like uh, social housing flats locked down uh, while right next door. You've got you know the, the extremely wealthy d- coming and going as they please. You saw you know the, the markets there uh, attacked by riot police, and you know, and meanwhile, look, someone like Gina Reinhardt spent the entire pandemic on a luxury yacht. So the, you know, in a way, I think often what happens in this situation is people 
regular people, uh, you know, whether they're sort of libertarian-minded or just, or just you know, naturally distrustful of government, as, as they should be, they, they see this stuff, they see the ways in which uh, things are happening, you know, they see, see these big corporations like Pfizer, who, you know, let's be brutally honest, Pfizer are, are a pharmaceutical company. Do they have the best interests of people at heart? Of course they fucking don't. They're, you know, they're, they're after making profit. And everyone's after making profit. It's, you know, it's, it's opportunistic crisis capitalism. Everyone wants to make yep. profit off this. But, you know, regular people see this. Sure. Like, I always, always talk about this in the sense that they, they react to the right things and draw the wrong conclusions. Mm, so that, you know, they, they, re, they react to the authoritarianism. They react to the, the you know, the profit above all else uh, models of, of the big corporates and big pharmaceutical companies and, you know, the government agencies that essentially, uh, you know, represent those those big corporations. They see that and they think, well, this is, this is dodgy. And yeah, it is. Mm. And but then they react. They think, oh, there must be. Uh, it's, it's the World Health Organization. It's uh, it's, it's, it's UNESCO. It, sure. It's uh, it's you know it's it's this. There's this secret society out there that are trying to implant uh, microchips in our brains. And that it's just it's it, you're right. It's childish. It's um and it's it's also so simplified and that people can't understand. It's you're right. It's actually much more mundane. There is an economic system, and it functions mm. by you know s- sort of human relationships that um, you know they're complex human relationships, but we perpetuate those human relationships, and 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 that has outcomes, and those outcomes sometimes may look as though they're so you know well organised and conspiratorial, but often it's just much more mundane. It's often just about governments maintaining control, corporations making profit, um, and you know, and that's I think that's what we experienced, and and that's where in a way you know there was this great opportunity to expose some of the contradictions of capitalism during the pandemic. I do think, and we might differ on this, I do think mm. that the, the left sort of uh, dropped the ball a bit on it in terms of we had a very moralistic, perhaps, response to it. This, you know, this idea we took this kind of, uh, took up the, the concept of the social contract very, very hard and in a very liberal sort of sense. You know, I'm talking about the broad sort of Australian left here, whereas, you know, like you have to do what's right for the, the, the common good and, you know, you have to maintain your social contract, get vaccinated and so forth. Anyone mm. who doesn't is an idiot or look at all these construction workers in Melbourne, they're all just bloody idiots. Mm. Uh, this kind of hostility people had towards anti-vaxxers, towards people who are suspicious of government and corporations, laid open a lot of ground to the far right. And we saw, you know, a big resurgence of the far right in Australia. Wasn't just the left's fault, of course, but I think that, you know, the fact that we took such a moralistic response, blaming the people who are suspicious of government and corporations, rather than coming in and saying, you're right to be suspicious. Mm. You're very much right to be suspicious. This is the fucking system. But it's not lizards, you know? It's not fucking lizards. It's just the capitalist system. Surprisingly, I agree with all that, Ray. I'm actually quite <laughs> stunned. Uh, this is a, a rarity for regular listeners of the New Media Show. And I think that's a very nuanced uh, and, and balanced analysis, Ray. And I think um, part of what you're addressing there, and this is, uh, I think, an indictment and a, a pretty disturbing and, and, a, and a serious indictment of, I won't say the left, uh, it's singular, but certainly elements of the left, was a certain disdain for working class people, and particularly that section of the working class that uh, were suspicious of the vaccination program and the lockdowns and uh, and pharmaceutical companies, and and they were fearful of losing their job if they uh, didn't adhere to the, the vaccine mandate and so forth. Now, I, I mean, I, I disagree with that stance. Just to make it clear, you know, I supported uh, uh, vaccination. I didn't support people being sacked for not being uh, vaccinated. And I think that's where I, I, I agree with Ray that the mandate, Western Australia being a good example, was a very hard mandate. I mean, it got to the point some people may not remember. I think that's one of the things about COVID is it was such a... a I'm going to use the word traumatising actually time for a lot of people and there were massive mental health consequences that Ray's referred to and people were thrown into profound social isolation and a state of uh, really abject fear which I think affected their ability to think clearly and logically and coherently which was, is part of the problem. And I don't think the left was immune to those fears and those anxieties which affected their ability to, to, to analyse what was, what was really going on. But the point being, instead of actually having human solidarity and, and understanding and feeling for people who were, you know, were sceptical about vaccination. The attitude of too many people on the left was, these people are backward, you know, these people only have their individual um, concerns at heart, they don't care about the rest of the community, uh, and that's the reason why, you know, they're breaking lockdown or they're not, they're not getting vaccinated. So, in other words, there's an assumption of, of political backwardness, 
And, and I think Ray's right that there's a kind of moral dimension to that that I would argue is alien to the traditions of the left that I was uh, brought up in, which I spoke about on the last episode. So whereas in times past you would make a sustained effort to you know, patiently convince and persuade people of your position, to convince and persuade people of your position, uh, which is now, it seems to me, not something that, that many people on the left do. There's a, there's a very hard and firm position that's adopted, and anyone opposed to it, you know, again, is morally, morally and politically backward. So that's certainly one of the mistakes that the left made. There wasn't a, a, a position of actually educating people what health measures should be adopted, where is the state They're clearly gone too far in terms of locking down people in public housing units, in terms of allowing some people to come back to Australia when there were, uh, the border was shut, you know, if you had enough money to do so. Countless stories of executives um, quietly being given exemptions to those border closures and being allowed to come into Australia on private jets and actually um, having exemptions from having to go into hotel quarantine. Uh, you know, they're all kinds. So there, there was clearly a class dimension to it as well. But yeah. um, I, I would just, just to summarise those comments. So again, I think to you know, to, to, to articulate the differences between us. One of the things, and again, you know, it, it might seem like a counterintuitive thing to say given some of the, the awful things the state did in terms of infringing on people's rights. Nevertheless, it's, it's dialectical in the sense, it's dialectical in the sense that what it also showed was the state's capable of doing good things. I mean, let's not forget, for instance, the Liberals were forced for economic reasons of sustaining their own system and purchasing power of people they double the dole for people, you know. They double the dole. They, you know, it, it, and there was there was a huge amount of money put into um, these vaccination programs. It was an enormous scientific endeavour worldwide. So there are contradictions there because the, the capitalist but, but, states were yeah. we're doing we're doing we're doing those things for their own reasons. Essentially, they were doing it to get the workforce workforce back on its yeah. feet, to get to workers back into uh, the factories and the offices in order to to produce surplus value, to produce profits. But there's a sense that well, there's, there's there's that level of of what took place where. It was a revitalisation uh, of the state, both in good ways and bad. Um, a, a re, um, or it, it lent credit uh, and to, to the state that we hadn't sort of seen before for, for many, many years after going through a period of neoliberalism where anything to do with the state was seen as bad. There were there was a level at which we saw the state doing some good things, some some good things as well. Just to just to pick up on that though, Alex. I mean, if if you look at sort of the the role of of, of social welfare, and it's sort of you know surprising and and, and perhaps um, you know you're mistaking your wor- wording to say that you know the state is doing good by mm. by doubling the dole because I mean we, well, we know forced we, forced into doing yeah, that. Yeah, it's forced, forced into, into doing that. that. So it should make it a little clearer the way in articulating that that they were forced into doing something that really only the state could do to improve uh, the conditions of people's sure, lives and, by doubling but the it's just, it, it is it is a it is a bit of a you know a bugbear in mind that it seems so very few people seem to understand the the function of what social welfare is in a capital state and I know you do and I'm, I'm not mm. you know trying to say that you don't but I think it's a good point just to or, you know, a good moment to point out what social welfare, what its function really is mm. in in a advanced capitalist society. It is, you know, to keep wages and conditions low. Now, for a lot of people listening, that might seem, well, you know, what what the hell do you mean by that? Well, when you have, uh, you know, a bunch of people that are being kept alive, kept desperate enough that they're basically willing to take, you know, a- any work, and you know. Uh, you always sort of find that um, you know attacks on the dole often are coincided with uh, uh, your loss of penalty rates or attacks on wages and conditions because you need to keep people alive but desperate enough that they're willing to take someone else's job because if you're sitting there working in a you know wherever you're working in a cafe you're getting paid you know your twenty four dollars an hour if there's ten people waiting for your job you're not likely to take industrial action. You're not wi- likely to demand wages and conditions. If there was no unemployment in in a country like Australia, it would be very. It would be a lot easier for workers to take industrial action to get better wages and better conditions. So, whether there are, you know, of course, some liberal social democrats still in within the, the Liberal and Labor Party that actually believe in welfare as you know as, as doing good and so forth, but the, the actual function of it has always been about maintaining wages and conditions, and, and that, by maintaining them, I mean keeping them as low as humanly possible for the bosses. Because without it, then you have riots. And mm. we saw that, you know, we've seen that all around the world. We've seen that even in Perth, the unemployment riots um, 
back at the beginning of the 20th century, when, when, when people have absolutely nothing, they're willing to do anything. Mm. And, and people are willing to take, uh, you know, sort of extreme, extreme measures to, to survive. But, you know, vice versa, if people are sort of, you know, kept alive but desperate enough that they're willing to take any job, then it means you can sort of, um, you know, manage wages and conditions. I don't think I particularly explained that, but no, no, articulated no, no, it very well, no, but no, I think it's, absolutely right, it's an important just, point because again, it's not so, just about the state yeah. doing good or helping people. No, indeed. No, again, I, I, you know, at, at the risk of belabouring the point so that uh, anything I've, I've said in this podcast isn't, isn't misconstrued and... Uh, later ends up in a, in a meme somewhere saying that Alex thinks the capitalist state is great and does great <laughs> things. That's not what I meant. It was a more nuanced uh, a point, and, and Ray's, I think, expressed it well that, uh, let's be very clear about that, the social welfare system is not about um, um, maintaining uh, people's uh, livelihoods and standards of life. It is about maintaining um, a certain degree of economic stability in the system as well as uh, suppressing wages. It's also about maintaining purchasing power. You can't have hundreds of thousands of unemployed people you know, denied a degree of purchasing power to keep uh, spending on commodities to keep surplus value uh, being being generated. But getting getting back to to my point, I think you know it wasn't through the beneficence of uh, 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 of Scott Morrison that the dollar was doubled. Um, you know, there were structural economic reasons for doing that. But nevertheless, I think the point remains that there was a, there was a glimpse of the possibilities of what the state can do, what it ought to be doing um, if we sort of accept Liberal's own position that the state is there um, to to ameliorate some of the, the worst, what they would call excesses of the, the, the capitalist market is to provide social welfare and uh, spending on health and education and, and you know, public services generally. So that, that, that was really my point is that there was a brief moment there when you know, many, many tens of billions of dollars was being pumped into the system, necessarily so to uh, to maintain its stability, but nevertheless, people could see, goodness, after decades of these neoliberal wedded states arguing that there's no money for services mm, and there's no money for welfare no, and there's no, no, no money, money for, for the uh, suddenly, basic income right? So that, that's the point, Ray, is that suddenly we're faced with this yeah. global uh, pandemic, the worst uh, health crisis anywhere in the world for a century uh, since uh, the, the, the misnamed Spanish flu of the post-World War One period. Goodness, all of those ideological... Um, uh, 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 struts of the capitalist system have been a, a little bit like the 2008 economic crisis after years of hearing the argument we can't afford this and we can't afford that suddenly there was literally hundreds of billions of dollars to bail out big banks so that that's more the argument it gives a glimpse of, of the possibilities um, that can take place when those ideological uh, you know, parameters are suddenly swept away and the capitalist system realises it needs to Adopt a different set of measures in order to in order to save its own to save its own system. But um, coming back to the conspiracy side of things, because I think that ties in with some of what we we talked about on the last episode, Ray. I think more broadly, uh, and this is a, an obsession of mine. More broadly, the it speaks to that the lack of um, an analytical framework and the lack of what I spoke about the last episode was common values and principles and, and a common framework of historical understanding. The kind of childish, you know, outlandish, frankly, in some cases, just totally insane conspiracy theories that emerged during the COVID period, I think partly does speak to the fact that uh, so many people uh, on the left, or not just beyond the left, just in society generally, don't have that historical framework of understanding. There's, they have no frame of refer reference for understanding such a you know, catastrophic global event. And without that, um, that analytical frame of reference, you're going to go in all kinds of wild and woolly yeah. directions. And that's what we saw. And the left not being strong enough um, to, to make counter arguments uh, it, that 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 meant that people were all at sea in terms of trying to, you know, process, comprehend, understand what what was taking what was taking place to them, and then I, I think as I said before as well, a lot of people just collapsed into a state of abject abject fear and anxiety, and that that leads to all kinds of, mm. um, you know, that leads to all kinds of, let's say, incorrect understandings of what was taking place. I think this is something that I find quite fascinating is is you know how people. Um I guess how we all develop meaning, um, and I think you know there's a, there's a lot that's been written around you know, ar around this. But one thing that I find sort of particularly fascinating, I don't want to necessarily just constantly cover old ground. You know, we talked a bit about sort of you know uh, surveillance and platform capitalism and hyperrealism and everything. The, the sort of the reality we live in now. But one thing that I do think is quite interesting is now it seems very much that information has become synonymous with meaning. 
And by that, I mean that, you know, there's many philosophical uh, explanations as to how we understand the world or how we develop meaning, you know, uh, from phenomenologists to, you know, more sort of positivist uh, approaches um, or, or structuralist approaches. And, you know, we're not going to get into all of them. But for, for me personally, in an anecdotal sense, I believe that, you know, meaning is very much derived from experience, whether that experience be through, you know, your own critical understanding, through reading, through in- engaging with theory or through your own interaction with the world. But there seems to be this sort of reality in which we live in now that it's, it's just accepted that so long as people have access to information, doesn't, you know, because we've got everything is just online now, so long as we have access to information, media information, then that will somehow translate to, to some form of meaning. But I, I just, it, it, for me, just looking at a, at a, at a website or, or watching a video and somehow that, becoming uh you know i guess forming part of your scheme or part of your your understanding of the world there's almost a step that's been missed and i think we talked a bit about this on last week's program about the idea of sort of collective organizing and you know social organizing we can take it outside of a, a political framework and just say look you know in a in a traditional village scenario when people are working together eating together Meanings are formed through human relationships, through the through the physical working with one another. Whereas in this online reality, you know, you just have you have text and images, and meaning it, it's it's sort of it's it's very it's incredibly subjective, but it's also simultaneously incredibly homogeneous, uh, and and it's sort of this strange. You know, people are creating all sorts of meanings out of just things they've read online, mm. but you know. There's no there's no grounding in any sort of uh, objective reality, if that makes sense. It's, it's just it's and it's I find it's a very difficult thing to talk about because it's very abstract, and mm. that's part of the problem. Is we live in this abstracted world of information that mm. isn't grounded in you know the well, actual not, physical stuff. Yeah, and I think it's all, not just the the physical dimension of uh, enculturation, socialization uh, that's important, right? It's also um, that people aren't uh, filtering, processing, understanding what they're viewing and reading online through a set of social processes. In other words, you know, and I think, again, this is where we, we differ, Ray, although there's, there's, there is an area of commonality that... Um, yeah, cyberspace, to use the old 1990s term, uh, online space, digital spaces, they're not inherently bad. And I, I don't want to caricature your own uh, arguments. You're not necessarily saying that yourself, but it's not inherently bad that people um, you know, spend time online to share ideas and that there are uh, you know, forms of organising and solidarity that have actually been uh, achieved partly through uh, you, you know, online um Interactions and there's we can spend a good deal of time talking about going back to the, the speaking of the 1990s, the the cyber utopianism of that period, uh, the kind of free access to information that was going to up going to open up, the the communities that were going to emerge, um, you know, online and of course history showed differently, didn't it? That, that the corporations eventually uh, monopolised the digital commons. And here we are today with with these giant mega corporations that control much of our online space and interactions. Um, but nevertheless, I, I think I think the point is not so much whether we're talking about online or offline interactions. It's the social processes that take place. So the problem, to me, more specifically, is people are isolated as um, free floating individuals by and large when they're uh, behaving and operating online. They're not part of, um, you know. They're not acting consciously as part of a social group or a class or a political group. Or I'm not even talking about just simply politics here. Culturally speaking, um, socially, people operate by and large as, as atomised individuals, which um, maybe segues to one of the things we were hoping to talk about today, which is to, to frame some of this discussion is, and some listeners may have uh, heard of his work, uh, Mark Fisher and his um a somewhat famous book, uh, Capitalism, Capitalist Realism, Is There No Alternative, published in 2009. And he was, um, you know, one of the people actually in the 90s who was very excited about uh, the, the emergence of, of, of digital uh, spaces, which he sort of later, um, you know, saw the reality of how that, all, how that all panned out. And he was somebody who talked about, um, you know, the ultimate triumph of neoliberal uh, culture who that we live in, 
a period marked by the American um, sociologist Francis Fukuyama's famous thesis that the end of history is here, that uh, we can't imagine beyond the beyond capitalism. All, all of that, all of that plays into to what we're talking about in terms of the you know, the overarching political reality we we operate under. So that that's I'm being a little bit vague and abstract there, but I think it's that that. Um, that sort of wider cultural reality, which which explains ultimately why people are so atomized and isolated, not necessarily or not by definition the fact they're spending so much time online. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I guess on that, and I'm, I'm glad you've mentioned Mark Fisher there because we're going to talk a bit about Mark Fisher. But I, for me, I, you know, one of the sort of the perhaps the differences we have on this issue is uh, with the neutrality of technology. We talked a bit mm. about this last week. But I, I think the one thing that I'm, I'm fascinated with, and I don't have an answer, uh, you know, for this sort of this question, but do you think the actual um, reality of uh, platforms, online technologies, mobile phones, devices, is also somewhat at fault? And, and I, I say that in the sense that most of our lived experience well, not most of, but a lot of our lived experience is now becoming mediated by screens. And there's a reality to screens. You know, there's text and images, and this is something we've talked about before. But, you know, text and images has a, a habit of flattening reality. You know, that if, if what you consume, whether it's information, uh, you know, of, of any kind, whether, you know, videos, images, essays, books, um, music, if, if it's coming through a device that is, you know, totally flattened, a, a total sort of 2D environment, it has has this flattening effect where the mediocre becomes important, the important becomes mediocre, everything sort of, there's a, a kind of relativism at work. Well, it's not necessarily relativism, but it's just that the, the ex, you know, the grand experience of, of life, you know, and then gets kind of squashed, I think, because it's, you know, like just to give the example, you know, you're on your, your Facebook feed and... You see uh, something about the war in Syria. It's horrible. Mm. You know, like, share, comment, and then oh, you see, you know, you, your friends just had a, uh, had a had a had a coffee at the the farmers market. Oh, like, share, you know. And I think it, our experience of the world through these platforms is having a a, a psychological and and political and even sort of you know emotional effect on us. Um, and and you know, I guess sort of tying into the. You know, to Mark Fisher's point, there's also this constant recycling and reproduction of mm. culture that occurs. There's not really, you see that with sort of meme culture, you see it with, you know, with music and, and film. There's not like new experiences, it's just the recycling of experiences. Even that concept of sharing something, you know, you're just constantly reposting something and then it cycles through and comes up again. It's, it's, it's not a, um, it's not a, a, it's not an experience that, you know, you, you could have in in the physical world. I don't think it's 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 quite alien to the physical world. Yeah, I, I, again, there are some differences between uh, Ray and I on on this question. And well, I mean, I tend to go back and forth with my own position. I think it's a it's a complicated debate, and it's you know welcome um, the, the discussion of these ideas because I don't know that um, any of us have a hard and fast position on the nature of these technologies and their long term consequences. Precisely because they've become so fundamental to our daily lives that it's become very much. Um, you know, you're not being able to see the forest for, for the trees when you're living through this phenomenon. I think it's difficult to to gauge it and, and really understand it. But I, um, you know, I would say that the technology in its current form is uh, antisocial by nature. It is. Uh, I mean, so if we if we take Facebook for example, I think it's actually pretty commonly understood now. The product that is being sold on Facebook is you. And your personal information, and your data, and your daily habits, uh, and and your uh, spending uh, cycles, and so forth. So, once you recognise and understand that you are the customer that is being sold for a profit to Facebook, that ought to shape your understanding of the entire platform and and the technology. So, I certainly agree with Ray in that sense. That um, again, if we look at the projection of the nature of online technologies that people like Mark Fisher were hoping and anticipating would emerge over the course of the next 10 to 20 years. Clearly, those technologies are radically different from what um, eventually, you know, did emerge. So that's one way of thinking about it. If, uh, you know, the cyber utopians like Douglas Copeland, Copeland and, and, and Mark Fisher, um, you know, the, the inventor of the whole earth catalogue, all these sorts of people who were running Usenet and, and et cetera, et cetera. 
if they had uh, the reins of developing technology for, for human good uh, instead of um, you know people like uh, uh, Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg, then we can well imagine there would be, well, actually, I don't think we can imagine because they would be so radically different to the forms of social media and, and technology that we see now. We may, we may not have social media at all um, if, if people like that, uh, you know, in some, in some theoretical world where Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley was, a, you know, the Soviet uh, Republic of, of Silicon Valley, um, I think we'd expect to see very, very different types of, of technology. So that, that's what I would say. Right, you know, mm. is it an inherent problem with the technology? Yes, in the sense of the way they've been developed um, for profit. Is it inherently bad? Of the, again, the idea of people interacting online through different forms of technology that aren't designed for profit, but instead for human need. You know, maybe it would be different. But mm. but, uh, but but again, just just tying this in with Mark Fisher's ideas, the um, the premise of his book was was riffing off. What the American philosopher uh, Frederick Jameson and Slovenian philosopher uh, Slavoj Žižek have actually both uh, been. This quote has been attributed to both of them, and it's become quite a famous quote. It is easier to imagine the end of the world than it is to imagine the end of capitalism, and that that was really Fisher's thesis and a lot of different elements to to that thesis. But the idea of spectatorship. The idea of spectatorship and the idea that we all now are passive, passive consumers of uh, images and text and video, over which we have no control or even any possibility of, of influence. That's, I think, at the heart of modern despair, and it's at the heart of a sense of hopelessness. Um, and again, I'm not just talking about people on the left. I'm just I'm talking about people in general have mm. a profound sense of despair and hopelessness. And and Fisher's explanation for that hopelessness was essentially to say that what Margaret Thatcher had said in the 1980s famously she said and I quote there is no such thing as society there are only individuals and their families end quote uh, which became known as TINA the acronym TINA T-I-N-A there is no alternative Um, and I mentioned Fukuyama's end of history thesis as well so that's that's the context in which this this phenomenon of, of digital spectatorship and extreme passivity and alienation takes place. Mm. Um, I mean, and, that, I, and, I, yeah. and I think, and I think Fisher's, Fisher's thesis, and this was a book written 13, 14 years ago, I think it's still fundamentally mm. correct. So what am I trying to, to say there? I think what I'm trying to say there is that sense of hopelessness and despair and the triumph of neoliberal culture, that's what shapes the technology and mm. that's what shapes the way we behave online. So I think there is mm. some nuance there and is it the technologies itself or is it the wider cultural and political context in yeah. which that technology has developed? And that sort of, it, it kind of feeds back to how we started this conversation a bit about talking con- about conspiracy theories is that, you know, capitalism in a sense can be considered somewhat of a feedback loop. That mm. technology feeds back to sort of, you know, the, the machinations of, of government and the elite and so forth. And then it's not as though people, you know, necessarily have set out uh, with a master plan to to create this great panopticon that is, you know, the platform and surveillance capitalism. It's just sort of as it's developed, it, it, you know, it's there's been an element of organic development, I think, and you yeah, know, and, and, and it's very opportunistic. You know, not, that, not to uh, not to disrupt you there because I had a good go at uh, speaking there, Ray. But just just briefly, I think perhaps one of the reasons that that explains our differences is I am actually a little bit older than you, and I, I'm old enough to remember that era of 1990s cyber utopianism. That's for, during the period in which I first started using the internet. So I've used Usenet. I've mm-hmm. been on forums, you know, back in the 90s where. Believe me, um, the internet had a real sense of, of wild freedom and anarchy to it. I mean, this mm. is I, I'm old enough to have used the internet, Ray, when there was absolutely no advertising on any websites. Yeah. There was no corporate control. There was no social media. There was no. So I think that that does um, you know shape and inform it, my it, point of view. It, it so does, the point being, yeah. there's there was in the mid 1990s there was an alternative vista uh, or an alternative future for for the cyber space or whatever you want to call it. Um, mm. There was a real possibility of that, and of course, things have turned out very differently. I, th- I think part of it is also that I will be, you know, I view this uh, through the lens of sort of Baudrillard's or Baudrillardian uh, sort of philosophy as being a form of sort of simulation or what's called, you know, simulacra or simulacrum. Uh, and, you know, I, I think it's very hard to, to say that, you know, it could have turned out. Differently, because obviously we're we're living in that uh, in that reality now. But uh, but I think that 
a process by which you create any form of uh, sort of hyperreal simulation through representation. And and I guess we could, you know, obviously um, Baudrillard was talking about this pri- way prior to even the internet. He was talking about it from more the perspective of, of media in general, TV and film. But when you create uh, this sort of what some might refer to as a, a second subjective reality, when you create a reality of things that have meaning outside of their actuality, so they have meaning through their representation. Mm. So, we, you know, take a, take an example of a, a famous scene in a film, maybe the Titanic, you know, the scene in the Titanic when, the, you know, they, they're embracing on the, on the front of the ship. I mean, we can all visualise it just by, by saying it, you know, even, mm. even if you haven't seen the film, you probably know what I'm referring to here. But th- that means that, that that representation now has, you know, has a value and and you know and I guess I often think about this in terms of the world there being sort of a, um, one might say a, a master-slave relationship in terms of how you understand the world. And historically, particularly with with print media and, and basic media, you would you would read something and you would be able to you'd visualize the world and it would invoke feelings because of your lived experience, because you know you would be connecting to the characters. No matter your age and your background, based on your lived experience. If there was a romance in a book, it might be you know a young person is yearning for a romance, or it might be if they're even younger, even their parents, or an older person of something they've experienced themselves, and they feel things because of their lived experience, because they're reading this book. Now, as media has developed, I believe that relationship between the you know your lived experience and and the representation has started to mm. shift. Oh, I agree, and we, with and we see that mm. we see that in film and media. And the more you experience life through a representational reality, the more this becomes the dominant reality. And just to use a stupid example, it, it's one of those things that you know you're 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 somewhere and someone says, "Oh, that's just like that in that mm. film," or someone you know references uh, you know a Seinfeld episode or something. So, so it's almost like that relationship, whether or not it's flipped entirely, but it's almost as if now we're deriving meaning in our lived lives from representation, from a false representation from, from the simulation. of what is presented to us as as lived experience. I one hundred percent agree mm-hmm. with that, Ray. I think, uh, I mean, we use the term uh, media mediation often, digital mediation. It's really the wrong term because the experience that's being mediated or represented is actually uh, cut out of the 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 phenomenon altogether. And you mentioned uh, phenomenology earlier. That that's. Uh, um, an intellectual theory which says that really, you know, meaning uh, comes from your own experience, uh, uh, you know, unfiltered, un- unmediated by any form of representation. And I think that's that's no longer the case. People do uh, their frame of reference of, of meaning uh, and understanding daily life is is through representations of life, mm. not through life itself. I completely agree with or, that. Or what? Baudrillard would call the simulacrum, what it has no connection to life anymore. It's, well, it's, sort of, it's, it's a copy that, of a copy. Yes. So it's, you know, in a, in a sense, it, you know, it, it bears no relation to any That's right. reality whatsoever. So it's whatsoever. not even, it's, so it's, 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 it is, uh, you know, um, a, a sort of, a, a, well, that's hence the term hyperreality. That's, that's mm. specifically what is being referred to with Baudrillard's a concept of hyperreality is that the representation or the ostensible representation, I should say, of an event in the world actually isn't a form of representation at all. In fact, the so-called representation comes to replace the event itself, and that is essentially a definition of hyperreality. So um, Baudrillard's thesis was really um, sharpened around the time of the Gulf War, and, and Baudrillard is most famous in popular circles for saying the Gulf War never took place. And he was, of course, lampooned and made fun of by a lot of people who like to, probably including myself, uh, uh, like to make fun of French postmodernist thinkers. I mean, first of all, I think it's unfair to, to lump Baudrillard in with uh, uh, with Derrida and, and Foucault. I think he was a very different thinker. And secondly, that quote was really bastardised and, and wholly misrepresented because what he actually meant by saying the Gulf War never took place is that people in the Western world never actually experienced the Gulf War and never actually saw genuine representations of the Gulf War. What they saw... And this is 1991 when CNN first emerged as, as a global media uh, uh, superpower. And again, we're talking about the mediation of uh, you know images and videos on a terrestrial uh, analog uh, news news station. You know, years before the rise of the internet as we know it today. Uh, nevertheless, that old bricks and mortar media. Um, 
represented or presented a picture of the Gulf War that bear no bore no relationship to reality. So there are a set of images and and you know videos and reports that ostensibly represented that war, but really didn't at all. So that was Baudrillard's point. We never were exposed to the reality of the Gulf War, and you can extend that principle to any social phenomenon. And I think just to to tie that in with a with a with a more with a more straightforwardly political point. And this is something that Fisher talks about in his book *Capitalist Realism*: is that it, it because um, it, media images representations are unanchored in reality; they're not moored in in social mm-hmm. reality. Ray's right to say they don't then impact back on the world itself because, it, and this is, I think, one of the things that's crucial to understand is that previously there was an event, the representation of the event would then influence further events, which would influence further representation. That linkage, if you like, between event and representation is now severed. Mm. It's now severed. And that, I think, helps to explain why we feel so powerless and hopeless in the current world. So, And Fisher actually writes at great length um, using actually a Foucaultian idea. Um, I beg your pardon, not Foucault. Um, uh, Herbert Marcuse, um, French philosopher who wrote One Dimensional Man in the 1960s, he talked about the concept of manage, managed resistance. Uh, managed resistance meaning that you can pursue independent lifestyles and cultures and alternative music and clothing and you can even have quite radical politics. Um, but none of that particularly matters if it's corralled and, and canalised into certain uh, forms of resistance that are, that are actually controlled and managed by the capitalist system. And there's no better example of that than the proliferation of Mm, meme culture, mm, mm. than the proliferation of many thousands of well-intentioned young people who will declare uh, their radical politics online and think that they're doing something radical by declaring their politics or sharing memes and so on and so forth, when in fact... Again, um, that that form of resistance is being channeled and canalised into totally neutral and safe avenues, which the capitalist system is quite happy to tolerate. So they're mm. quite happy to tolerate socialists and anarchists going online and, um, you know, I don't know, sharing a meme of, of, of whatever whatever it might be. Well, it's, um, it's not a threat. It's, it's, it's because it's threat. because it's not a threat. And so I think that's a specific point which needs to be understood, which again comes back to, to, to what Ray's arguing as well, that is the technology um, cursed in some sense, if mm. you like? Are we all being uh, subjected to this great historical trap by spending so much of our time and energy online well, it's, it's, and may, how, may well be the case? It's, it's how the technology has been developed now. Is, you know, is, is there, as, as sort of going back to, you know, I'm not saying that this technology is inherently cursed but the way it currently functions and the fact that even the fact that we have individual devices you know for our you know to to express ourselves through our individual you know facebook sort of avatars or instagram avatars all, all those things are they're all they all perpetuate the same logic of, of neoliberal capitalism um i do think you know we're running out of a bit of time this week but i do think we can actually bring this back to where we started the conspiracy theories because i think it's an important point that because, as you said there, the linkage has been broken and representation is feeding on representation, therefore, you know, where do these where do these conspiracy theories come from? It's not to say they didn't exist prior to online technologies, but if you look at how they're perpetuated and you look at where, the, you know, where they originate now, they are largely coming from the mouthpieces of sort of, you know, online kind of shock jocks to, mm. to some extent. And there is no, there is no linkage back to the lived real experience. It's just sort of, you know, being uh, cycled through and regurgitated through this online representational reality. So, you know, there's like, you get this constant thing of people, their, their fears around the vaccines and, the, you know, this person's gotten sick and whatever. And it gets these sort of essentially, you know, non-truths get spread virally you know, and, and then it doesn't actually link. There's no, there's no point. There's, by there's the no time, correction by the, to by that. By the time yeah, there's, there's a there's a correction, yeah. or too late, it's already been regurgitated and replicated elsewhere. And it's another story. So it's not never like, oh no, wait, did, did this person actually die mm. from the vaccine? Oh mm. no, no, they didn't. But by that point, it's it's too late. You know. Yeah, so, uh, and I think, and we 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 do need to, to wrap up because we're uh, trying to keep these episodes to around the one hour mark. But I think that uh, dovetails quite neatly with something else we were talking about. Uh, Last week, in terms of the the collapse of those great armies and 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 battalions of of the left in the form of the trade unions, the Labor Party left that entire 
um, you know, dynamic, creative community of people dedicated to social justice that I was fortunate enough to be a part of when I when I was a young man. And all of that has collapsed. It's not there anymore. It's just it's simply not there anymore. Um, in 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 the, in the kind of the physical spaces that that Ray is referring to, in the social spaces, um, you know, that, that I was referring to. So those corrective mechanisms to correct false ideas, false understandings. Um, I mean, to, to put it very concretely, you know, that meant um, actually having a chat with, with your comrade at the next trade union branch meeting. Oh, what do you think about this sort of, you know, this Pfizer vaccine? Do you think we can trust it? Is it, you know, you, you, you know insert topic X, um, those sorts of social um, correctives and, and forms of culture where people actually discussed ideas and iron these things out in real life on the basis of real life again that, that it seems to me that doesn't doesn't exist anymore um, and, and that's maybe sort of putting it too too extremely but um, so what's the conclusion to that the conclusion is we have to reforge and rebuild real social spaces based on lived experience based on um, you know real phenomenological experience of the world and does that necessarily mean that we uh, go offline altogether? Probably not. Um, but it means, essentially does mean rejecting the kind of um, digital hellscape that has been uh, created by uh, the likes of uh, you know, Zuckerberg and, and Steve Jobs. And we need to escape from the confines of that world and, and, and build, uh, you know, start setting about the, the building, at building our own world, essentially. <laughs> Last week we did say we we're going to get a, someone in to give us a TikTok lesson. So, so. yeah, well, <laughs> but uh, but you know, look, that, that's that's a, that's about that's about it. Uh, hopefully, it's been good. I think I don't, I don't even know where we went there. We sort of sort of yeah. went all over, the, but we sort of got bogged down a bit into uh, to hyperrealism again. And, we did, and we, we did. We, we don't want to limit what we're talking about, but you know, I guess it's look. This is it's a big subject. We we discussed it a bit last week, and we've managed to to dive deep this week. What's good? It's good to sort of. Um, to bring up the, these ideas and hopefully people find it interesting and entertaining. Um, you know, who knows where it will go. I think it's, you know, you did mention there uh, the labour movement. I think it might even be um, time to sort of to focus on that a little bit more if people are interested, just and I, maybe, even, maybe even a guest. Oh, and a we guest. probably didn't respond to some of the feedback as well as we, we might have. Uh, I made a false promise at the start of this this episode to to talk about, um, you know, how we do re- rebuild the left. Well, I suppose we have partly answered that question. One answer is maybe spend less time online uh, and stop fighting each other so much online. So that's that's yeah. maybe maybe one of the lessons. Oh, well, look, tune in, tune in next week. We might actually uh, we might actually talk about it, but yeah, if you if you got any feedback, uh, you know, look, let's be real. We're probably mostly talking to our friends here, so um, you know, if you, if you're enjoying it, you got you got a question or something, we'll really uh, you know give us give us a I don't know, get in touch with us somehow and uh, let us know, and we will um, yeah we'll try and address it. And feel free to uh, unleash you know really caustic criticism should you feel it necessary. Yeah. Yeah, particularly towards Alex. Yeah, particularly towards me. Sure, I deserve it. I deserve it. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Ray. It's been fun again. Yep, yep, yep.